Well, we've been in the midst of a series of messages about people or groups that separated in the Bible. And sometimes the disputes that divide people develop over generations. That is certainly the case for the story that I want to share about today. Today I want to study the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah from the Old Testament. A lot of people don't realize that Israel had a civil war that divided it into two kingdoms, a kingdom in the north and a kingdom in the south. Uh, we talk about Israel all the time, but we don't um, really know a lot about their history. And it's one of the reasons why reading the Bible can be confusing because we say Israel and it can mean a number of different things. Um, it can just simply mean the geographical region that was uh, in that, that uh, Palestinian area where Israel existed. Israel can refer to the 12 tribes of Israel who occupied that area. And before Israel was ruled by a king, they were a loose federation of 12 tribes. So there was no unified kingdom. So we just referred to all of those tribes as Israel. And then under, uh, first under King Saul, and then King David and his son Solomon, uh, Israel was unified. The 12 tribes were unified into one kingdom, and we called that Israel. Uh, but then after the Civil War, Israel was divided into a northern kingdom, and this is where it gets really confusing. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom was not really uh, a very godly kingdom. They didn't really follow God, and so they sort of were the bad, the bad guys in the story a lot of times, but it was Israel. Judah is the group of people who compiled and wrote down most of the Bible that keeps calling everyone Israel. Um, and of course, Jesus was a Jew who came from the tribe of Judah, and so um, he came from Israel, but was actually Judah, not Israel. Is that confusing enough? Yeah, it gets really, it gets really hard to keep up with. Um, but they had this civil war that divided the kingdom. What was the cause of the civil war? Well, it was something that developed over, many, over generations, and it was also, as with many splits, it was something that was very complicated. It was not just one thing, but it was a multitude of different things. First of all, there was rival politics. Understand, Israel had not been a unified kingdom for very long. They started out as a confederation of 12 different tribes. And of course, tribal people tend to be tribal and clannish people tend to be clannish. And my tribe is better than your tribe and all of those kinds of rivalries were going on. That was just part of their DNA, their makeup. Um, also, there was the problem of taxation because King Saul, King David, King Solomon, they all were in one tribe, but they were taxing all of the tribes to get the income that they needed for their army, for their building projects and all of that. And, you know, people like to have nice things, but people don't like to pay taxes, right? I mean, and we, we, we know that today. Uh, we love great governmental programs that do good things, but we don't want to pay for it. We don't want to have to pay taxes. So this always a tension, and it was a tension for Israel as well. Ultimately, though, God ordained the split up of Israel into two kingdoms. And we're going to talk about that today. 
The wedge that eventually drove a split between Israel in the north and Judah in the south started with King Solomon. Solomon was King David's son. And you've probably heard about Solomon because he was supposed to be the wisest man who ever lived. Furthermore, under Solomon's rule, Israel became very rich and very powerful, which was unusual for this tiny little kingdom in, in the midst of all of these other great empires around them. But under Solomon, they had great success. Third, Solomon built the famous temple in Jerusalem that we talk about all the time. And by all accounts, we remember you might think Solomon was the ideal ruler, but you might not know the whole story. Solomon had a fatal flaw that actually became the downfall of his kingdom, but it wouldn't happen until Solomon died and his son Rehoboam came to power. So we're going to talk about that and we'll start in 1 Kings chapter 11 and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. Groucho Marx once said, politics doesn't make strange bedfellows, marriage does. That's kind of funny, but it's kind of true, especially in this situation with Solomon. Because you have to understand, most of Solomon's marriages were political in nature. Marriage for ancient rulers was a way for them to secure a treaty with another ruler. It's hard, to, you know, it's hard, I guess, you know, you think about Solomon. He lived in a time before they really had contracts. They didn't have a United Nations that could, you know, kind of police the global community and make sure everybody followed the rules. So they, they were trying to figure out way, how could you make a treaty with another nation and make sure that they didn't break the treaty and betray you. One of the ways that they did it was they would, marry into each other's families. I guess their thinking was, it's harder to betray someone who's married into your family than it is someone else, right? And your daughters, maybe your daughter is living in their kingdom. And if you betray them, how, what would that mean for your daughter's safety while she resides in that foreign kingdom? So marriage was a way for one ruler to secure a treaty with another ruler. And Solomon was such a powerful person with a powerful kingdom, everybody wanted a treaty with Solomon. And so they would marry off their daughters into his kingdom. And that's why he had so many wives. Now, God knows the human heart better than we even know it ourselves. And this is something that we always have to remember, especially for young people who are deciding who are they going to marry and spend the rest of their life with. Who you choose to marry, that person has the greatest influence on you, your attitudes and your beliefs. They are going to affect more than anyone else in this world, more than your parents or more than your children, more than anyone. They're going to affect how your life turns out, where you go, what you do 
how successful you are. And so God knew this, and that's why he told his people in Israel, don't marry foreign wives. It was to protect Israel from being led astray by foreign people who worshiped false gods and idols. And actually, this prohibition was not, it was not that God didn't like foreign people. It was not even that God didn't want uh, Israelites to marry foreign people. He didn't want them to forsake him. And if foreigners uh, forsook their false gods, if they turned away from their idols and worshiped Yahweh, the God of Israel, then it was certainly uh, okay for Israelites to marry them. They would actually at that point be part of Israel because they worship the one true God and then their marriage would be certainly condoned by God. So it wasn't about the people, it was about who they worship. And even though Solomon was a wise, effective ruler, he forsook God's warning and his many wives and concubines swayed his thinking and corrupted his decisions. Solomon even began to worship false gods. So we'll pick up here in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. The Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. So now the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father, David, I will not do this while you are still living. I will take the kingdom from your son. And even so, I will not take away the entire kingdom. I will let him be king of one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. And then in verse 29 through 32, it says this. One day, as Jeroboam was leaving Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah from Shiloh met him along the way. Ahijah was wearing a new cloak and two of them, the two of them were alone in a field and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and he tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 of these pieces for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and I will give 10 of the tribes to you but I will leave him one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Israel remained united as long as Solomon was in power. But eventually Solomon died and his son Rehoboam came to power. Rehoboam refused uh, Rehoboam refused to reduce the taxes in Israel and he even boasted he would raise them higher and that he would enforce them stricter than Solomon had. So the ten northern tribes of Israel revolted and the kingdom of Israel was torn in two. You can read about more about it in 1 Kings chapter 12. Now, it was not God's ultimate will for Israel to be torn in two. God preferred Israel to remain faithful and remain as one kingdom who was faithful and worshiped only the Lord and they would represent 
um, God to all people of the earth as one unified kingdom. That's what God wanted. But unfortunately, Solomon was not faithful to God to the end, and neither was his son, Rehoboam. So God allowed Jeroboam to rebel and to split the kingdom in two, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. But what happened next is the saddest part of the entire story. It comes from 1 Kings chapter 12 and verses 26 through 30. Jeroboam, that was the king in the north, Jeroboam thought to himself, unless I'm careful, the kingdom will return to the dynasty of David. When these people go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord, they will again give their allegiance to King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and make him their king instead. So on the advice of his counselors, the king made two golden calves and he said to the people, it is too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And he placed these golden calves in Bethel and in Dan at either side of his kingdom. But this became a great sin for the people worshiped the idols traveling as far north as Dan to worship the one there. Isn't that sad? So after God punished Solomon and because he had led his kingdom to worship idols, so God tore 10 of the tribes away from Solomon and his dynasty and, formed, and, and let them form their own kingdom in the north. But then the king of the north, Jeroboam, does the same thing. He also leads his kingdom to worship idols. Don't you ever just want to scream when you read some of these things? I know God is sitting there so many times looking at Israel again and again and again, rebelling and doing stupid stuff, and he just wants to scream. Jeroboam, God gave Jeroboam 80% of the kingdom and put him in power in the north. But rather than worship God faithfully, Jeroboam was scared and he was greedy and he was power hungry and he was paranoid and he turned away from God, the God who gave him a kingdom. Jeroboam set up idols. He led the people of Israel astray. And ultimately, the 10 northern tribes of Israel who had turned away from God and worshiped the golden calves disappeared from the earth. Their kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The entire population was either killed or deported and assimilated into other people groups. They no longer exist. We call them the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Nobody knows why, where they are. So what started as a good thing ended very badly because of idolatry and unfaithfulness and selfishness and pride. I think there's a practical lesson for us in this today. We always need to be on guard against idolatry, against false gods in life. We always need to be that. 
But the temptation, I think, is even greater when we're going through some kind of trauma, something that has turned our life upside down. Maybe it's when we lose someone, or maybe it's when we go through a divorce. It could be when the, when the kids all grow up and they move out and you're now an empty nester. There's no kids in the home anymore. It could be when you retire from your career, move to another place. Lots of different things can turn your world upside down. And in these moments, your routines, your relationships, your emotions get all shaken up. And you may find yourself longing for something to cling to, something tangible that you can hold on to. And you know, we look at those Israelites in the northern kingdom and think, why would they worship an idol? I mean, why would they do that? But you've got to understand, for them... Something that they could see, something that was golden and beautiful and they could touch it. Somehow that seemed more, uh, that seemed better than trying to worship a God they couldn't see. A God that was invisible. Maybe they even felt imaginary. At least the golden calf was something they could see and touch. When you find yourself looking for something to cling to. Be sure you're clinging to Jesus and not some golden calf. Idols and false gods always let you down. But Jesus never does. And he never will. But sometimes it just seems like we need to hang on to money or to power or to people or to prestige, or to material things, because these are things we can see and we can touch, and we know that how they work in the world. But God, who's ever seen God? And sometimes we wonder, is he even there? But all of these things of the world, they give us a false sense of security. They cannot provide what we think they can and what we really need. We are called to worship the one true God through Jesus. He is the only one that's real and eternal. So don't let your trials drive a wedge between you and God. Hold on to Jesus even more firmly. Before I came here to Pleasant Grove, I served at Mount Zion in Forsyth, Georgia. And... Um, Something happened that I never forgot. It kind of made me laugh at the time. And at the time, I didn't realize how prophetic it was. But we used to get um, these promotional things that would come in the mail. You know, for instance, we got a pen. We would get a pen that had the name of the church printed on it. And of course, they'd give you one for free. But the idea was, um, hey, we've given you this for free. Look how awesome it is. Why don't you buy 300 of them, you know, and you can give them away to people. Um, well, one time, they sent a pen in. And it said Mount Zion United Methodist Church on it. Well, it was supposed to say Mount Zion United Methodist Church on it. But instead it said Mount Zion Untied Methodist Church. Because apparently whoever was in charge of the, the machine that day didn't do the spell check and he mixed it up. I mean, I know it happens to me all the time, but it was just kind of funny to me. And I used to carry that pin around and would kind of laugh and show it to people. But I didn't realize that, you know, 10 or 15 years later, the United Methodist Church was going to be coming untied. Right now, 
we are facing in our denomination a split. Many believe the United Methodist Church has drifted from God's original mission and has lost its way. Not only has the denomination lost its footing on some of the most important historical, biblically-based Christian doctrines that, that Christians have always accepted, the United Methodist Church is also, in many ways, has become dysfunctional and inefficient and overbearing. And it, it's not something that, it's like the, the kingdom of Israel. It's not like it happened overnight, but over time, little things happen until you get to that place. So congregations and pastors across the globe are rightfully right now discerning whether now is the time to disaffiliate from the denomination. And along with all of this, they are contemplating what to do next if they leave the UMC. Should they join the new Global Methodist Church, which is a new denomination trying to reform and make, get, the, get us back on the right track? Some may be considering whether they should join another Methodist denomination that already exists. Others are considering whether they should become an independent congregation with no denominational affiliation so they can just do whatever they want as a church. I believe God has ordained the split in the United Methodist Church. But I also believe God ordained that split to help his church be more faithful to Jesus. Not simply to do whatever they want or to use it as an opportunity to get control or to take power upon themselves. And I think that this is a critical time for everyone to stay close to Jesus through prayer, through Bible study, fellowship, through worship. The temptation at a time like this is to do what we want. And if we're not careful, we may find ourselves acting like Jeroboam, who got scared and who got greedy, who wanted to do things his way, wanted to be in control and wanted to hold on to that. And so he turned away from God. He set up idols. He led his people astray. He used religion as a way to control. And they were destroyed. And they are no more. We're living in a special time in the life of God's church. And it's critical that we act as God's church and not just do whatever we want. What about your life? What are you facing in your life right now? What is God saying to you today? Let's pause for 60 seconds to listen to God's word to us and answer him in prayer.